You're listening to The Bunker New York, live on Red Bull Radio. Uh, after your mix is over and people think about Mike Huckleby, what do you think they're going to say? Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. I'm your host, Brian Kasnick. We're here live in the studio from Detroit. A very special guest, Mike Huckabee, in the studio here. He's going to do a two-hour set of his own music, and we're going to do an extensive interview in the middle here as well, so stay tuned for that. We're going to get right into the mix with Mike now. Again, you're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio.
to Red Bull Radio. Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. We're here live in Detroit. We are with our special guest, Mike Huckabee, who's been in the mix for the last 40 minutes. Yo, yo. That's Mike. And uh, we're going to be listening to some of his productions that you put together for us in the background during the interview and then get back in the mix with him. But all the music you're hearing on the show today, the whole two hours, are Mike Huckabee's original productions or... Remixes. remixes there's some remixes in there as well um so yeah um i guess we could go start by going way back to the very start and just asking how how you got into this music did you have like an uncle or a dad or yep actually my uncle <clears throat> who just passed away unfortunately uh was uh, my primary influence uh, for rhythm he would make me and my brother uh, play drums until our hands were like red. And uh, I cite him as being my sole influence in my family for um, pursuing DJing and rhythm and those types of things. So, was he like a record collector, musician? He was. Uh, he was quite quite a brilliant man. I, I would say he was even a genius. He was. Uh, he was a drummer in a lot of uh, significant uh, drumming groups in the 60s. Um, and then that's where my brother uh, took on that more so than I. And he became a drummer and actually followed my uncle more so than I. Is your brother still active in music? Yeah, my brother's definitely. He does records. He plays on uh, a lot of uh, recordings. And if you listen to a lot of my records um, lately, um, probably in the last two or three years, um, like you'll hear a lot of percussion in a lot of my tracks. And that's I sampled my brother one day. And uh, so you just sat there and <clears throat> recorded him. And yeah, actually on my iPhone. And because when we were listening to we were listening to the samples back, and we liked that dirty, grimy sound that came out of the 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 iPhone being recorded in the iPhone, and even in a lot of um, uh, real time situations, like he would be in a club, and I just put it close to the drum, and it would be all these types of a noise in the background, and even that turned out to be great. And then so I would like chop up, chop up the drums and do various different things to the drums. And like, even like I could get like a lot of variation out of just one loop that he played. Smartest thing I ever did. So you didn't use any special microphones, nothing. Nothing, just... uh, nothing. <laughs> iPhone. Straight into like um, iMachine on the iPhone and uh, just in, uh, exporting them back to the laptop. And then uh, chopped them up in Ableton Live, and uh, uh, that that was the beauty of Ableton Live because he wasn't playing at any known or given tempo. And I told him, "Don't worry about that. Just play how you feel." And then um, I was able to like warp those in Ableton and define a, a, a tempo to like um, what he was playing, and it all worked out. It all worked out pretty fine. I mean, uh, I mean to get a chance to release something from my brother at some time. 
Um, it just hasn't happened. But the first step was just to sample and play of various instruments. And um, it actually turned out really, really good. Yeah. So in the, the R interview you that you did a while ago, the Machine Love one, you mentioned that you didn't have like a family member with a huge vinyl collection or that you felt that a lot of the New York guys kind of got a, a leg up on Detroit back then because they... I don't know, came from like a deeper musical background with like huge well, yeah, disco I collections mean, yeah, and stuff. I mean, your disco collections, you always hear Kerry Chandler talking about his father's DJ collection. Uh, Louis Vega and his various um, connections to like um, Latin community and I'm sure that someone in his family was um, adept in a record collection or um just uh, music that he was influenced by. Um, you know, New York has always been um, heavily influenced by, like, disco. And then I, I, I say that um, New York created dance music. And see, a lot of people say that New York created house. I say Chicago created house. I say New York created dance music. And why do I say that? Because... Uh, a lot of major label major labels were looking for um, extended versions of songs like from maybe Madonna yep and they wanted they wanted an extended version that people could dance to in the clubs because then they were starting to market the, those records in the clubs that became an industry yeah it's a different form of promotion for them like radio or anything else and, and then that's where a lot of DJs got work Jelly Bean Benitez like uh, Sergio Manzabar or uh, just tons of uh, T. Scott, whatever. Um, these guys got a lot of work doing this. Um, and so then dub, overdubbing techniques, uh, remixes, extended versions, and then it just, uh, you know, became like its own thing and in, in, as we know it now, yeah. uh, stemming from that. Yeah, and while disco was huge across the whole United States eventually... I think especially in New York, it was just insane how big disco got. And you still, I still see it today in all the, even now, decades later, all the record stores in New York are just flooded with disco. I mean, people, had, there must have been so many cats with disco collections. Well, one thing I could uh, accredit to New York, I, I think is brilliant, and I, I do accredit it to New York, is that they pioneered constructing the record where the break would be at the end of the record. Oh, really? That I would say New York pioneered that, definitely. So making it easy to mix out of the end of the record versus, like, listening to a disco track and trying to remember the, like, but 16 see, bars in the middle see, somewhere. what you have to realize is that, um, like, a disco track would often be quite long, and so, like, you wouldn't... I mean, it, and it even reflects in New York DJ's uh, aspects of DJing where like maybe like four or five minutes in you don't even hear the horn section uh coming into this record and you really want to look at it as like a contribution from a musician um instead of just this part because uh you know disco records incorporated a lot of musicians so you would have horn musicians you would have violinists you would have pianists you have all these types of music and like 
those parts of those records um, evoke a certain uh, emotion from the crowd even like sometimes like a cr- the crowd in New York would even like you could go to a club like Body and Soul or the Shelter like they were waiting for like this part of the song to come in yeah and you so, see everybody go like crazy. you would really want to look at it as like a contribution instead of just a part I guess I've been studying like I've been studying like uh, just like the roots of um, I mean just just going to parties around the world um, and just just really listening and playing paying attention to like how DJs play um, just really uh, really is, a, a, is something that you can like tell a story from and are you saying you think there's like regional styles of DJing yeah, like as you definitely. go around you're hearing what are some examples of that where okay. like, what are you hearing yeah. in different parts of the world well, in terms I, of style or I'll, technique I always say and I can always back up what I say that the east coast gave you a, the experience of the song while the west coast gave you the experience of the track of the United States yeah like okay. the east coast gave you the, the experience of the song while the Midwest Midwest gave you the experience of Okay, the, the Midwest. So like more when the you talking about like when the ravey stuff started happening? No, nah, I mean just just if you, uh, if you want to just look historically, you could see that that's true even from like disco. Um that's the experience of a song. Um the way the disco DJs were playing house, in the Midwest. And then the house producers took that ethic on and structured their records somehow like a disco record but with a break at the end so that like you could hear the whole contribution of the song you could hear like certain things from uh attracted were attractive to certain listeners and then you got the chance to hear that um in new york i think the new york feels that it's a sin to play a record less than four minutes if it's eight minutes i mean you have like the the, the systems that can embrace um uh, and uh, accentuate like different parts in the song and I think that you know they it became uh, typical to like let the record play a lo- lot longer yeah I mean I grew up hearing like the Body and Soul guys a lot and even Danny Teneglia at vinyl and yeah those guys played. they couldn't they wouldn't play a classic for three minutes four minutes no way because it's like you a, gotta hear the like, whole thing you gotta <laughs> hear the whole thing yeah, but I do remember, you're right, because I do remember being pretty shocked when I first started hearing DJs from Chicago and Detroit, and they're just, they're busy. They're in the mix, well, constantly. giving you the experience <laughs> of the track. Right. Cutting and it up. It's just, just how I, I, I say it goes, and I always say I can back up what I'm saying. Right. So, to go maybe more into some other influences as you came up, what were, like, as I guess starting as young as you can remember key record stores that I assume would be mostly in Detroit, where we are right now, that kind of shaped your view on music or kind of pulled you into things or started you collecting in a certain direction? Well, uh, well, Byright was the premier um, and found a store for electronic music um, in Detroit. And I actually actually worked there for about six months. And... Um, so I would what, say by, when was that? What year uh, were you working? It was right after record time, so like in 2005, I worked there for about six months. Oh, okay, after record time. 
And then um, actually a lot of stores before that would be like Damon's Records, Professional Records. Um, those were like um, two uh, very important record stores. Um, it was another one on Six Mile and Schaefer near. I can't remember the name of it. But there was, there was record stores all over Detroit. I mean, even like even record stores on Finkel. Um, I can't remember the, <laughs> some of the. Well, I've heard I've records. heard a lot of people mention Byright before, so why don't we? No, what, I mean, like, what what was up with that? Where I mean, I when did you like, start shopping? What were like the first records you bought? There? Alexander Robotnik, never forget it. Yeah. <laughs> um, problems with DMR. That's a jam. Uh, Hurricane Collier playing. I was like, what is that record? Went there and got it. Uh, the first rec- the first, the f- very first record I heard, like in a club that was that was just did it for me, and like it w- I knew that I was gonna uh, uh, pursue this. It was uh, Nancy Martin. Can't believe I uh, went down to this club called and I, uh, well that goes because like you had a lot of like DJs that used to work in a, in a mall in a store called Man O' oh Man and like they would play like this music that and they would play their tapes like Delano Smith, uh, Daryl Shannon or Mike Brown and you would hear their tapes while you were shopping. And so I one day I got the courage to ask them. I was like, "What where do you hear this? Where would you go even go to hear this music?" And somebody told me, "Well, it's the downstairs pub." Uh, and it, it was actually one of Zayna's parties, which runs Spectacles, which is not too far from this Red Bull Music Academy office. And so I went down and walked in, and Delano Smith was playing, and I heard this record, and it was like, boom, that's it. So you heard him DJing at a record store in a mall, but that no, was no, no. I heard his they heard his tapes. They were playing his tapes there. Okay, and then so like. I asked one of the guys, like, where would you hear a party or, like, going on where this music would be played? They told me so, it was the downstairs pub. So were they playing, were they selling records in these stores in the malls? or No, just, no, no. no. This but was they a somehow clothing, had tapes. This was a clothing store. Oh, oh I get it. So they were, like, the fashion store. people who knew what was going on, where to go to have fun. And so that's how that came about. Um, and uh, those parties were quite successful back down there, like, um, even... Jeff Mills played there. Like um, it was Zayna's party. That King Kali was would play down there quite a bit. Um, he was playing that night. I think that was. A, I think I met. I met him. Like I met him the from like the first minute I even said I was interested in being a DJ. And I met quite a few people. Just it just it just took like I inquired and people were around and that were doing it and that were. <laughs> So what year was this that you were, uh, went to your first party? Oh, wow. I got to <laughs> think about that. But while we get to that, Eddie Folks was the first DJ that like took me by the hand and sat me down and told me how this scene works and who was who and what was what and everything. He was, I met, I'll never forget it. I met him at the bus stop. And he had on a deep space uh, a jacket. I was like, are you are you in Deep Space? When we started talking, and like, um, was that when the radio show Deep Space? No, was that then? was no, no that was club. that was Juan Atkins and uh, Eddie Folks and uh, Keith Martin, Art Payne, a uh, few other people, Hurtis Cummings, few other people um, in that, and it was like a club, and it was a big rival between 
Deep Space and Direct Drive, which was another popular um, party group, because there was a lot of party groups in Detroit. That like um, this is this is all before like the Detroit House aspect or movement came about. Um, it was ba- ba- Detroit was based on like progressive music, a lot of imports, and these records you will get from Byright pretty much solely from by right so those were european records yeah like doctor's cat fail to drive uh loving music a lot of records that you hear um djs play uh capricorn martin circus uh these these types of records and that was this was a big scene in detroit and uh you know and i was just barely coming into this when this was going on um but you you would hear like these types of records played in most of the like clubs that like where people knew were into that type of music. And then you're saying from there, it's some somehow we get into Detroit House, which I assume was influenced well, by maybe what people were hearing in Chicago. Or no, it goes back. It, it goes. Uh, it was a well. I mean, you had like. Um, the group of number of names that produced Sharivari, nobody knew where who, I, I didn't know where, who those guys were, I didn't know who how they made that record right. <laughs> um, and so they came with this record and uh, which is, which became, which was uh, really expensive uh, like in the 90s on uh, eBay or whatever you could even fetch like four hundred dollars for this record, a copy of the original record, and now they're they're actually uh, playing a lot of festivals and playing live and doing a lot of interviews. Because um, a lot, because everybody talks about them when you talk about. Yeah, it's like a seminal record. They were they were actually here in the studio in May for one of uh, Brendan and Erica's interdimensional transmissions broadcast the week before movement. but i i had never knew who those guys were and there's another record in from detroit uh this record um uh, and a label called sound of detroit and when i was working in record time we actually um ordered um i don't i don't even know how the record came in but i was like the buyer and i was like i want some more east right no no actually i got it from like a east coast distributor and like I kept wondering, like, man, who who are these guys? And they were from Detroit, and nobody knew who they were for years. And like, who, I were, tried, who were some of the artists? Not only no, they had one record that's on the gray like record. It's on it's the gray release on Sound of Detroit, and uh, I could have did a lot for them guys. I, I'd have to say if I knew who they were, because uh, the record was buzzing. Um, it was a good record. I'm pretty sure it's probably a sought-after record on in the Discog circles, and uh, that was another mysterious record that it came out from um, Detroit. And uh, I think it's—I really think it's a shame because they didn't link up with anybody um, ever. They just uh, pressed it. And somehow got into maybe, a distributor. They were not. They were not accessible. Nobody knew anything about them. I think they would have had a lot more opportunities in the Detroit electronic music scene if someone knew knew of them. Right. So going back to where we were, do you remember when the first year was you went to a party in Detroit? Oh, so I was in. <laughs> I was in. Uh, I was in uh, high school actually. 
This is probably like 83 or 80, something like that, 84 or something. That's a long, you, you got into this really young then. So, uh, yeah, the downstairs pub. So once you, once you went to your first party, started talking to people about DJing, getting involved in music, has there ever, have you ever had any other trajectory in your life? Or is it just, I guess I'm wondering, like, if you hadn't found this music and kind of set yourself on the trajectory, (laughs) like, where would you be? What would you do? Oh, man, I mean, dead or something. Uh, Like, I always say, like, the music, music in Detroit wasn't a way out. It was the way out. Um, it, and it, it just found it just found you and you orientated yourself to the way that like you could possibly see yourself involved in it and you went for it. You had like uh, you know Juan Atkins, Derek May, and Kevin Saunderson starting labels, and you had the Electrifying Mojo show playing um, playing this music. You had WJLB with Derek May playing the music. You also had the, the Wizard. So you're basically looking at you could see either a kind of bleak future or oh I mean working in a factory job all day long 12 hour shift that that was pretty much it was bleak yeah it was bleak for everybody so, and so like now like you know you don't even see any Detroit DJ you never see them in Detroit because everyone's traveling. You all, you only see DJs from Detroit in the airport or at some uh, event in Europe that you might be spending with them, or that you're just in town at the same time that they're um, playing. Because everybody, everybody is traveling, and every B side of every record has been reissued or re- licensed from a, a European label. Like I'm, and I mean like every record. Right. There's a lot of interest in Detroit artists for sure. It's like, I mean, it's taken me. I've done a couple years now, three years of shows. I think maybe it's two. I've done a lot of shows in Detroit, and you were at the top of my list to get on. It's taken us a while to do this because you're not here a lot. I mean, that's just the way it is. It's like you, uh, okay, the, your week usually goes where you're working on tracks all day. I mean, all week. Uh, and then by on the weekend you stop and you travel and you come back and <laughs> basically this is what you do here. It's like nothing to do here but work. I mean, this the opposite of like Berlin. This is where it's like too much to do. It's, I don't even I couldn't I couldn't live there. I mean, it's too much to do and it's and it's like great things to do. Like it's always something really interesting. And <clears throat> you know that gets into like what I. I say that like Berlin, you know, became like the second like rena- like the jazz renaissance in the in New York. I, I would say like Berlin and became that because literally like you can be in Berlin and just walking down the street and somebody wants you to, hey, you want to do this remix? Hey, you want to appear on this? Hey, you want to do? This? I mean, you would. I mean, you come back from Berlin or, or on tour like with all types of opportunities to pursue that you didn't or couldn't even dream of on the right. departure to Europe. Well, you've you've spent a good amount of time in in Berlin in I don't know like the last 5 years or so. You start when did you start playing in well, Berlin? Well, I mean, it was the electromagnetic dowsing remixes that I did with Rod Chord that just 
blew everything up. Okay. Uh, I put those out, and then the, the emails that came in. The deep chord stuff? Yeah. Yeah, okay. The, the emails just came in like crazy, like, get this guy over here, get this guy over here. And uh, and the, the label synth was um, really successful and still is successful. It was uh, more more or less my, my techno imprint. But that's changing a bit. It's still is some house on it because with the my life with the wave um, releases and the sample compiled with the sample CDs, um, there is some house um, on on that label. Um, so we um, I, I I know the difference between deep transportation and synth. Like deep transportation, <laughs> I they, hope you do. There will probably never be. Techno on it, and if it is, it'll be for a reason. And synth is primarily for more rougher type of tracks, leaning towards some type of techno influence. I right. Guess. And you've released. I mean, at this point, I feel like when I first met you, it seemed like you had a few records out on a few labels. But now, looking at the discogs from like the last decade or so, you've you've done a lot of stuff. On yeah, a lot of working labels. with uh, Jazz and Nova, uh, local, doing remakes, Local Dice, Pole, Baddest Law Delay, uh, Mikel Meta, uh, Rick Will Height, uh, a lot of a lot of artists, um, a lot of deals. Uh, these guys, they just these guys came at me. They they found me. They asked me to do remixes. They like, and this all stemmed from my own productions, which which made that possible in it to begin with um they heard something in my own productions sure let's get this guy on ours and uh just became a thing from there is there a different approach for you in the studio when you're making somebody something say music for somebody else's label versus stuff yeah you're yep, doing yep. for your own like what is the what is the day is it like a a mental approach or well like, like let's say like uh, when i'm let's say i'm remixing vadis law delay i look at i look to um how can i like mm, blow this guy up or something how can i make him how can i do how can i contribute to him um i try to you know what what about him can i exploit pro- um properly um because if it's a, I try to make it a win-win situation. If if he becomes big and it's my remix, well, I'm a part of that. Um, I just try to like exploit something about that person or contribute to that person, which will kind of take them to the next level, but also have me riding along with it as the primary person that created it and, and was the remixer. Um, I had to study a lot about my own sound from uh, how to get certain frequencies right uh, certain things to do in mixing certain things not to do in mixing and I made a lot of mistakes and I pretty much got the formula working right now uh, still but I'm still trying to perfect a lot of things um, and it's always changing, always always trying to use different drums for every track. I never try to, well, I don't really try not to use something twice, but it just happens that way. It's more interesting like, to do it that way, I would well, imagine. Well, I mean, I, I, if I can, if, if there's some usage out of a certain sound, I'll milk it. 
until I can't necessarily <laughs> use it. But usually, um, I, I am not against that. Uh, I'm not against that. Um, <clears throat> and even from Detroit, like I was, I, I consider myself more of a house head than a than I am techno. Um, you can play a mean techno set, though. Well, man. I mean, yeah, but, but 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 like producing techno, I think I'm producing way more techno than I ever thought I would be. Um, but it's cool. I'm, I'm looking at all of this like it's because I keep getting thrown in that arena. I just keep getting thrown into that arena. Like you get booked somewhere no, and it makes I mean, sense to like, play a tech, or with productions. You productions mean. and remake productions and DJ and so the demand for the DJing is from the productions a bit, not solely. And I just keep getting thrown into that arena. Like I'm like, okay, this is cool, this is cool. But but um, one thing I want to say about that is that, like I can't, I could never, I can't be one of those type of DJs that can't too closely associate themselves with techno because they have a house image or vice versa i mean i'm from detroit i mean and uh, i i I can't really even call myself a detroit techno artist i mean that's kind of like asking a fish if it wants to be on the swim team I mean, if you if you're from Detroit, I mean that's the best. best it's in way your blood, I, right? It's, yeah, I mean it's literally like asking a fish if you want to be on the swim team. I mean it's just that's it's in the blood, it's in the air, it's in the food, it's it's from here. So, do you get requests through your booking agents or promoters approaching you and saying, aside from me, because I know I did this to you? and ask you to play like a techno set or maybe there's a techno floor and a house floor and they're like, no man, I want you to like well, they, go for it on the techno I'm, floor. People know that I'm versatile. They just know that, and that goes, I mean, there's, there's a story to tell in everybody's sets. I mean, there's different um, moods. People are different in different moods and they've been like, I hate to say it, but smoking or drinking or whatever and you have to they, they're looking for something to excite them to be like take them up yeah and so you have to accommodate for that I don't think that you can um, well some people can but I choose not to ignore I'm trying to read the crowd as effectively as I can I'm not trying to sell sell myself out and do something that I wouldn't do while I'm DJing and and pay too closely attention to something. I'm just basically trying to play the records that I like that would fit in that situation. In that moment. And you still... And again, the point is that I like. Yeah. Because well, I don't play anything that I don't like. Well, you're... I mean, you show up with your, your vinyl records. I mean... I feel that we've had, I've had this conversation with you before, but I feel like with each passing year, there's fewer and fewer DJs in the world who are really doing all vinyl. But I mean, you're still like real deal. Yeah, we, were to, we, mean, we removed the CDJs before you started your set. You said you don't even know how those things work. Like you never. I, I don't. I mean, I don't even know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't even know how to like. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't even know how to. It's a mystery almost, but. Um, there was once, there was one occasion when I was in uh, Europe. I was in Paris, and my records didn't show up, and like um, I had to swing it. I had one bag of records, but 
I had to play some files. Yeah, you didn't have enough I didn't records know. to fill the time. Well, I guess what I was getting at is that you're, I think you're less likely to play something you wouldn't like because you're, I mean, you're limited to what's in your bag, which well, are all I records mean, but, but that you pe- paid your hard-earned money for. But and- see, people get too overly afraid of, oh, what if your records don't show up? Oh, oh, oh you got to be afraid of that. You got to play digital. You got to back yourself up. It's it's just, you. it doesn't happen to me. I mean, like my album where like... um. <laughs> I got my album name from my records. Like I was, uh, the guy was uh, some T. I still haven't found the name of that person who put that note in my bag. He said it was he. It was he's. And actually, I was playing in New York that when it happened. So the, it had to had occurred in Detroit. But when I got to New York and I opened my record bag for the first time, it said, "Man, this, there's too many classics to be left with little or no attention in in this box." And I was like. That's my. That's the name of my album. What was it? Little or no uh, protection, a, attention? Yeah, no protect, protection. Yeah. And so I was like, Yeah, I remember I gotta, seeing that on I, Facebook. I gotta put that. I gotta make that my name of my album. So when you're traveling with records, well, you you had the surprise note from the TSA. So you you are checking your records. You're not always carrying. Yeah, I mean, and never, uh, nothing never happens. I mean, nothing ever happens. I never, and if I lose my records, I get them back. They're on the next flight. And so I don't know why people are trying to make that a, such a big deal. I mean, you know, you play what you want. I mean, if you play digital, that's fine. Um, for me, I, I think it's just too much of the record store ethic um, because the shop had saw its demise from this changeover. Yeah, well, we kind of, we, we brushed over earlier, but I wanted to go into it a bit more is the dance room at record time because anytime I talk about Mike Huckabee, with anybody, especially my friends, so many of them being from Detroit, it, like the conversation instantly goes to your your your. I think maybe your biggest influence on Detroit was your time uh, working in the dance room at record time. So maybe for our listeners who aren't familiar, can you tell them just what like what era this was and what record time uh, was? 1992 to 2005. You worked there that whole time. Probably the golden age of all through the 90s which was the golden age of uh, dance music uh, considered by a lot of people Uh, just even I'm still trying to figure out certain things that records 20 years old were doing (laughs) really I mean I'm trying to still do that so a lot of things that uh, you know like we, we that you know there was a sampler in the dance room on the mixer and that's how we got, you know, a lot of, we define our sounds, even like Dan Bell and Rick Wade and Claw Young and Magda and like a lot of- so these are all people who worked with you in the yeah, shop. BM, uh, BMG, uh, yeah, tons of Quentin Harris. Derek. Derek, Derek Plaslico, <laughs> uh, Quentin Harris, all these, all these different people worked there and like, it was just a- melting point where like you got a chance to define yourself um, as a DJ and probably even um, musically as an artist you got a chance to see like what music was um, popular to the public what the public was buying so were you the were you the buyer that time when you worked at buyer and manager yeah so you you were you were I mean I would 
well, you said there were a lot of record stores in Detroit back then, but in a major way, you were kind of a big part of deciding which records yeah. the Detroit, the DJs in Detroit I were had, getting and what people I, were hearing. I had a lot of connections in Europe. Um, had a strong connection with black market records in London. And, um, I mean, I would go over there with just uh, even reckless records. I would go just show up with like a bag of promos or suitcase of promos. And they'd be like, we take them all. And like, uh, but it really blew my mind when you see what, when you got a chance to see what their promo game looked like over there. Like, I mean, we're talking about promos that like just would never, never be known to like the states. Records just weren't making it. I mean, there was, I mean, shipping then. Well, I mean, but promos, the promo, like on major, because you had a lot of major labels producing like promos, like you would have masters that work remixes of. Uh, like promo double packs, like that weren't that weren't re- ever released publicly. Well, they weren't ever released publicly and weren't ever re- released in the United States. So, like you would, like we would have our promos of like on major labels here, but there was so a lot more from Europe, and those promos were. It just really opened my eyes to like <laughs> what was going on, and like I was like, well, okay, and. Uh, I was fortunate that, you know, Record Time has supported um, anything that I wanted to do. And it was, we was selling a lot of records and and then they just went for it. And, and I always have been in that, that type of position, even like working with Native Instruments and working with Ableton. It always was in that position where like I was be told that like, well, go for it. I, I, like I, I never forget like when I got an e- email from Claudia when one of the guys told me that Claudia from Ableton which is the head manager she said whatever workshop you can get in Europe just go for it and like you wouldn't that that type of work ethic is not even known in America well no you gotta have a structure you gotta have outline you gotta do this you gotta do that um, so you, Ableton just gave you their blessing like is, you wanna teach a workshop somewhere he said, whatever he said whatever workshop you can get in Europe just go for it <laughs> and uh, that was like that That was one of the things the liberalness of Europe that just blew my mind because things here are so rigid and structured and the life is really sucked out of like the workplace and those guys they just they're sitting there and they're on their lunch break with you and it's well past an hour and you're like man you you got to get back to it you said no man don't worry about it if i stay late i just if i'm late if i stay long i stay i just stay later right more liberal environment so you're talking about some of these machine workshops and ableton workshops you've done in Russia, uh, europe uh, Italy, and all over the world australia new zealand greece uh, like everywhere like. so do you try to set these up when you're going now are you still doing these you'll, you'll go to play a gig in greece or russia and try to set something like no, this up on I the mean, side again they just come they come at me they, you brought that you get you get taken to russia or somewhere just to do these workshops well i'm usually djing and that's on top of the workshop but right that's they, what i was saying yeah they see mom they see i'm being in i'll be in europe and they just they, they the people just come at me 
Yeah, well, you, I mean, you have done a fair amount of these workshops and things in the U.S. I know you've worked, done the, do you want to talk about the youth fill thing a little bit? Have you, I mean, that's, I think, one of the most impressive things you've done is all your work with the youth here in Detroit. Yeah, that was a really good, really um, electric moment working at youth fill, um, just working with a lot of kids and uh, got a chance to m- meet a lot of young, talented um, producers. And that was a magical thing, just how that happened. Um, Alvin Hill was the director of, of that. And so I asked him, like, can I come down there and do a reactive demonstration for the kids? He's like, cool. And then so we kept talking, and I said, it, I said, well, can I do a class? He said, even better. Yeah. And so I, we, um, on my... Um, open walkthrough of you feel when I came down there halfway even in the building I said when do I start right I didn't even want to see it anymore I said when do I start and he was like okay well cool and then so like you know we got a little bit of press from Thump magazine and a resident advisor the resident both both I would have to say were but the resident advisor real scenes uh, movie uh, came first and it was just a huge uh, appreciation and following them for um, what was going on. You feel a lot of people donated equipment and cash and certain things that the students needed. And um, some of the students got design, sound design work from that. And one kid was 11 years old. He had sound design possibilities. And... Uh, and then from there then people saw that and they were hey would you like to come to this country our country and do a workshop would you like to come to this country and do a workshop and then they would just they saw my my tour schedule boom like right now I don't have a workshop in Europe right now on this tour that I'm brought um, uh, 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 announcing but I'm sure like I'll, I'll get one Okay, so it's still, and with the, I guess you said you just walked into Youthville and immediately wanted to start working there. Like, why, why do you think you had such a keen interest in doing this kind of community work? Because well, I mean, a lot of people don't, unfortunately. But what, what is it? I'm thinking maybe it's because of like you were talking about how music was the way out for you as a young man is that that's just something you wanted to share with these kids well I mean I was all, all see a lot of people don't understand like I'm actually getting tight in front of you and see that's what a lot of people don't also understand I'm not look I, I know when to be a, a philanthropist or a humanitarian and when not to be right and so you're, you're literally watching me acquire your skills right in front of you and I, and I always wanted to know how things worked. And I knew that it would play a significant role in shaping what I'm doing. And so I chose to place myself under that type of pressure where I would have to explain how something worked. And, and, and to do that even for to a kid and have them follow that, I knew that that would be a great deal of pressure to put myself under. Um... You know these, and then then have these kids making music not with the instrument or program that you're talking about. It, it was really, I mean, just 
I mean, it was I had to put my selling hat on and I had to make it work. And like a lot of the kids, they would come into class with like these beats and ask me like, how did he do this? How did Swiss Beats or Manny Fresh or Rick Ross do this? And, and they would uh, play me these and I'm like, okay, how do I show and demonstrate this maybe in React or Ableton Live? Right. So it's a challenge for you, was, and you probably you probably learned a lot through doing this. Yeah, as well, I, I mean, imagine. definitely. Um, and well, I mean, one thing I learned, uh, man, the techno is all is it's just a compression game, and uh, and some people like uh, uh, some people um, say, man, what is he talking about? This guy is crazy, man, making a statement like that. It is. I mean, you try to play a track in Burkheim that's not compressed right. Yeah. And then you'll see if it's a compression game or not. <laughs> That'll show you right then and there if I'm if I'm talking out of out of my side of my mouth that techno is just a because it is. I mean, yeah, if you play an unmastered track there on well, any I mean, sound uh, system, that's not compressed right. Yeah. If your kick's not compressed right, if high is, you know, not a struggle in my own productions in the '90s, t- terribly. And like um, every like every every all of my tracks have been remastered, and the difference is, is night and day, and I mean literally, and and it's really interesting because I've brought the value down of my original productions from the from reissuing. Right, the value of the original pressings because you reissued because the stuff. They're, they're much louder now. Um, they've been remastered, remixed, remixed down, and remastered. So, hundred, I could even play you a track you would just—I don't even—I feel almost embarrassed for. <laughs> well, I know you told me—I can't—I don't, I don't remember which record it was, but you once told me you actually had to buy one of your records mm-hmm. from somebody on Discogs in order to pay sixty-five dollars for my own record. <laughs> I didn't even go there with the guy. Like, hey man, I'm Mike Huckabee. I'm buying. Can you come here? I, I didn't do. You want sixty-five? <laughs> Whatever, man. I'm not even gonna sit here and I'll bicker with you over the price. Give me what I want. Well, speaking of compression mastering, I know you work with the guy who masters for our or does the lacquer cuts for our label a lot, Tim Xavier. And I've heard or you've told me that you what are when you're you're not using the CDJs to play unreleased music, so you're actually you you cut a lot of your original stuff, right? To dub well, plays. I'm doing dub play, yeah. He. Yeah. I got a probably a unique relationship with him. He says I'm probably one or two or three guys that cuts dub play still because I can't really find a lot of records that I like right now. I think um, maybe maybe it's too many producers in the market right now, and maybe maybe not enough quality. So I'll, I'll hear like I have to go on disc. I have to go on um, track source. And find some records that I like, and I do edits of them, and I um, press them to dub plates. Oh, so that's what you're doing. And so that's kind of like being a real freak, because like you, I could just play the file, but yeah, I just make a dub plate out of it. I don't know, man. I mean, for me, like this whole vinyl thing is just a bit in my blood. Yeah, I mean, um, you, I've seen you do the reel to reel as well at the bunker, and when you were. You're playing at the bunker in Kisato, you would show up with your own reel to reel. Is that, are you still doing that, or have you yeah, switched over uh, more to dub plates, or are you still using both? 
I'm doing both. I mean, I get booked. I now get booked for like these samurai parties in Europe. I'm uh, actually playing, presenting my edits for um, the orchestra in New York, September 12th. Oh, really? Um, yeah, there's a uh, fortunate opportunity to play um, before the orchestra. Um, and you know the one thing you know about like that aspect like the edits that I did release with Rush Hour they were all like legal um, they were cleared the edits were yeah. cleared by the orchestra they were licensed from the orchestra um, and so it wasn't like cause I have a lot of edits that like probably will never they forwarded me a lot of some raw material on Who's they? Rush Hour? Rush Hour and the parent label, Art Yard, just gave me a ton of, like, unreleased stuff. And there's always, I mean, I, I, for me, because, like, my, my um, why I consider him so significant, because he was just so voluminous in his output. Yeah, I mean, he's he's got one of the largest and most in a way confusing discographies of every any artist ever i mean so many of those old saturn records that he he pressed them weird with different <clears throat> sides combined and then really you know sometimes with covers sometimes not really small pressings that you could only buy at the concert i mean that and that's just the stuff that actually got released in some way and yeah i mean it's i mean his output was just tremendous and um but why I say why I look to Samra, um, why I look to him like his discipline, uh, he's extremely disciplined as a musician and his knowledge and orientation to the scale. Because um, if you really listen to a Samra track, he starts well, he starts playing and then he'll do progressions or he'll start playing and then he'll introduce a sense of calamity and disaster in this playing and then he'll resolve that back beautifully right like he'll just create the just an insane amount of tension and then like he'll just resolve that beautifully that that's really when you're listening to sunrise that's what i think is you're attracted to so when you do we just kind of got into the sunrise thing but you have this you sometimes play these sunrise sets or you do a sunrub party like tell us a little bit about yeah, how does that work and how is that like wh- how do you approach that that's I, I mean I know it's vastly different from what you're usually doing in a DJ set but yeah, what's going was, on there I was told that like that would never work <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I'm still looking for the thread where the guy said man I don't, I, I don't see this working um and you know so I I, I created a new following and in, in, in audience actually just um, somehow got got gathered in my mind that like the crowd could uh, you could make a variation and offer something different and we did one the first one was in Berlin at Farpenzer and it was packed all night long I mean from the minute the doors opened to the last record it was packed and um it was just really interesting to try and take a risk. Um, it was just it's just to take a risk and offers like something different. 
And so from that, I actually developed like this party in various places. When we did one in Italy, and it was really strange because the I was with the promoter that was throwing my sunrise event, and he said that a guy walked down the street that had booked him in the seventies. We we passed by and talked to a guy that like booked sunrise in the seventies. And that was a, like a nostalgic moment. But I mean, I just kind of stretched the market and found a new audience, found some new music to play, and uh, it's been working. So when you do these parties, are you playing, you're playing all Sunrise music, your edits of Sunrise? edits, uh, his music, um, rec- and records. Records or the, the real. But it's and, all it's all Sunrise music somehow. Yeah, but then it goes off into like, um, Cause you can't really play too much sunrise because people don't <laughs> sometimes get it, or some people show up and they don't know why they showed up and they don't didn't necessarily read the flyer. You do have that sometimes, but um, just basically like um, created a, a new, new newer following. Um, I hate to say it, but I'm a little bit bored with house and techno right now. Um, and I'll, but I'll never, I'll never stop playing house and techno. Um, <clears throat> but these are these are new directions and things to delve into. And I'm often getting um, influenced by a lot of hip hop hip hop guys. I'm actually studying like a lot of the hip hip hop methods of producing music. Were some of your favorites like '90s stuff, current well, stuff? '90s, '90s definitely, but currently I would say like Mad Lib, MF Doom, and Deep DiBiase. I listen to the, these three guys and what they're doing with uh, samples and snares and breaks, and I like you know collect a lot of breaks right now. Well, I mean, it, that's that whole scene has become kind of full circle. As a lot of hip hop now is taking production techniques from techno and vice versa i mean if you're smart that's what that's exactly what you should be doing is opening your mind and experimenting and listening and studying your favorite artist or even an artist you don't like i mean that's one thing i do is i study people i don't like okay because there's often something that even even a person that you call a fool is actually wise about something yeah. he has to be uh, can't be off his rocker the whole time he's alive and so and there's really those cracks between you know when you're talking about that person where you could like find something interesting and just exploit I'm, I'm a master at exploitation basically I'm a master because even that you feel it was it was always a, a, a thing about positively exploit exploitation down there where I would allow myself to be exploited by the kids and if the kids showed up with some talent I would exploit that I would like exploit that and try to off offer that offer back what I knew was possible from exploiting it to them. They were often a, a bit young 
to um, take advantage of it. A lot of them were scared to release music. I had a lot of um, opportunities for them to release music on labels, but they were a bit stage uh, shy to do something like that. Do you have some students who we might know who've released music and gone well, on to I mean, have music? The primary person that came out of Ufield was Kyle Hall. And, and, and it's really important to note that, like, I didn't try to do anything to um, pursue the, the whole Ufield movement. It just came my way. I mean, I, you know, didn't set out to be this educator. I didn't set out to be this teacher, uh, whatever uh, is accredited to that. This just this all came my way. And so um, I'm just looking at because I'll never forget one day I was, uh, we had a, um, a, like an expo or opening day for, at Ufield. And one of the one of the faculty members was busy uh, enrolling people, and there was this one kid. He said, "Okay, fill out your application. I'll be back because I'm a little busy right now." And then so he came back. He said, "Okay, man, let me see your uh, application. What you got?" He said, "Man, I told you to fill this out, man. What's happening?" He's like, "Why didn't you fill this out? Fill this." He was like, "Okay, man, come on." See, the kid couldn't read. And yeah. it, it was like, oh, that's what that was about. And then right then and there, I said, okay, man, I see that now. I see what my role is down here in this environment. And it's not necessarily going to be teaching somebody how to be a reactor king or Ableton guru. It was just, it was the, the needs of the community were um, a lot more um uh, uh, specialize in, in, in working with the actual person them, themselves and uh, um, I kind of forgot where I was going to go with that but well that, it's been a lot yeah I think it's we can all agree it's been a lot of important work you've done um, well with that we've got about 25 minutes left in the show here do you want to play some more music yeah I can do that alright so we're going to get back into the mix here. You're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. We're here with Mike Huckabee. We've got, yeah, like about 25 minutes left, and he's going to play us some more music. And as mentioned before, all the music you've heard on the show and we'll hear for the rest of the show are either an, either an original Mike Huckabee production or a remix he's done. So with that, let's uh, let's get back into the mix.
Hello, you're listening to The Bunker New York on Red Bull Radio. I'm your host, Brian Kasnick. We've been in studio here with Mike Huckabee for the past two hours, playing us a bunch of his original productions. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Glad to be here. Uh, This was actually pretty cool, man, because I've never played... (laughs) I, I don't do mixes of all my tracks, and it gives you a chance to see how you sound collectively. Yeah, how, how it all got, how, how the music you've been playing sounds to collectively together. Yeah, what is this last one you're playing now? Oh, uh, this is well, kind of well, one of the tracks that put me on the map in Europe. This is where it all started. One of them, it was two mixes, two deep core remixes. This is the final step, electromagnetic dowsing, the final step by deep core. This is my remix, and people just um, went kind of crazy over these tracks when they came out i'm still repressing them i'm still repressing records i did 20 years ago um and you know this this business is all about how to create a sense of longevity for yourself how not to get stale how to redefine yourself how to break out yeah of anything that like um certain uh, factors may want you to stay stagnant in or being perceived by the public um and you know Detroit you know you gotta be a hustler everybody's a hustler from Detroit everybody's a hustler I found I found that to be true but like you're not like a you're not like an overbearing um like uh arrogant hustler you're just you just kind of like incorporate your hustle in in everything that you do you're not like a snake oil salesman or something yeah you just but you do look out you gotta gotta work your yeah you gotta work your angles and make it happen for yourself so i mean it's been a really like fortunate um experience just being from the city that just um has not really like exhausted itself um I think there's a lot more coming from Detroit, um, from every, everybody's camp. Everybody's trying to um, do new mixes, new releases, and everybody's just really interested in doing this for as long as they can, actually. So, um, other things I've been involved in, um, took a publishing class. Oh, yeah, you've mentioned publishing to me before. Uh, it's super important. Like, uh, Eddie Folks, again, is the, is I mean, Eddie Folks is just a, a, a brilliant person to talk to about publishing. He got me, got me all, he got me where I need to be and what I need to know. So I took this publishing class and just understood a lot more about, like, m- missing money that belongs to me. Right. Because... When you're doing a, when you're doing like um, all these, all this, these releases and remixes, like people can make money off of your productions without you ever earning the cents. So you really need to be savvy on how to run your business. It's, I think it's becoming more of a thing where like you need to um, spend your time understanding how the business works because I'll actually never sign a sucker deal again. Right. And I've actually um, did some 
but like now is I'm like let's okay labels let's make a deal yeah all right well with that we've only got about a minute left here so yeah thanks again for joining us this was really great um you've been listening to the bunker new york on rebel radio with special guest mike huckabee peace